deepest February in Europe can feel sparse, windswept and bitterly cold. Nature feels in retreat and sometimes as you reach for your gloves and pull your hat around your ears, it's hard to imagine that the skeletal branches of trees will ever be in full leaf. It's true that this time of year is perhaps not the most synonymous with beauty. But, like most things, that's in the eye of the beholder. This episode of Confect Corner ponders on the discreet, poetic and sometimes almost imperceptible joys of February. But seek them out and they are more than worth the effort. We'll discuss the fragile elegance of winter flowers like hellebores and snowdrops as opposed to the attention-seeking crimson of off-season roses. For some, the cosy intimacy of February is a productive time for self-reflection and creativity. This episode meets the Norwegian musician Faye Vilhagen to talk about the power of weathering the winter months in a remote cabin where she writes music that sums up the awe-inspiring beauty of clear, bracing, freezing days or the stillness of dark Nordic nights. And where would February be without a warming tipple? We'll pull up a chair in a cosy British pub to find out how one panelled Victorian boozer became host to a mural by British artist Phila de Barlow and a collection of countless other artworks which hang behind the bar. And our audio essay argues the case for resolving conflict and sealing deals in a traditional Finnish sauna. It's time to retreat from the chilly boardroom and make decisions with some Nordic clarity. Like the best convivial hotbox, this show is a forum for debate, new ideas and conversation. This is Conflict Corner and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. I talk a lot about the power of convening, bringing great people together, celebrating around extraordinary art, fantastic food and wine, great conversation. You know, if you're putting on a party or you want to give someone some flowers and you give them a genuinely seasonal bunch, it will be completely different every single month. In fact, most likely every two weeks. So it is an incredible opportunity to sort of mark the changing of the year. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in London. Hello to you both. Hello, Sophie. Hello, Marcello. Nice to Hello, have the trio back around Hello, the table. <laughs> Hi, Marcello. I know we've been darting around Switzerland, kind of missing each other over the last week. <laughs> when I was in Lausanne, you were in Zurich, and then when I was in Geneva, you were in Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> Berlin, exactly. So we have to just content ourselves with kind of virtual meeting that this show always is. Now, we always start the show with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcello, what do you have for us this month? Lately, I was in Genova, not a fashion town at all, and had breakfast every morning in the best address in town, the spacious Pasticceria Cafe Mangini. I loved it. It's there since uh, 1876, imagine, and kept its all-time elegance with soft yellow walls, those beautiful chandeliers, mirrors and a wooden bar. Try a slice of the salty focaccia with your cappuccino, as the locals do, instead of the Swedish pasticceria. And uh, those focaccia, I saw it at the old chic lady who came there every morning at exactly the same time with perfect hair and always a matching handbag to her coat. 
once in a camel by Prada, once in a dark chocolate by Ferragamo. This was so inspiring. And now I start to sort out my handbags to, to my coats. <laughs> <laughs> I love that image because actually those kind of older people who really know their look really take pride in every single occasion are sort of almost a kind of depleting breed in a sense. So many beautiful and amazing ensembles I used to see in the Jardin de Luxembourg in Paris. Proper nonagenarians looking amazing. <laughs> but even now you look at them in the 21st century and they look like paintings. You could almost, you know, flash back and you could see them poised sitting in the cafe a century or two ago. Well, I can certainly see Marcella pushing, you know, <laughs> the, the <laughs> a few decades down the line yeah. with a matching handbag. Maybe we'll get it done by that time. <laughs> Yes. Proper inventory has to be done first. <laughs> Gillian, how about you? Mine is nothing new but something old, I would say. I spent some time at the beginning of January in Nice because I've decided to perfect my French. I'm on a mission. And I took French classes in the morning and then in the afternoon I would flan. I would wander and I would wander in different parts of Nice and I went to the old Russian church there and the old train stations. One of my favourite things, which I always like to do in different parts of the world where I'm travelling, is search out flea markets. And there is a wonderful Marché aux puces in Nice that on the, I think it's the second maybe weekend of the month, it spills out onto the whole sidewalk of the old port. So you then not only have the really a little bit more sort of treasured flea market objects in the Marché itself, but then there are all these stalls and stands and glass and old photographs and old postcards. Normally what I like to do is look at the old postcards, but now I have a new passion, which is old travel guides and old travel books sparked off by a found in 1998 Bedeckers for Paris and I was mesmerized sitting in the cafe and reading all about the travel advice they would give to voyagers in the late 1800s and I think next time I go to Paris I'm going to kind of retrace the steps and see what's still there and see what's not but it really was such um, a nostalgic pleasure so now I'm on a mission to collect different old Bedecker guides for different cities. But Sophie, what about you? Well, I am weathering late January by going to some very historic hammams in London, I should add, because London actually had a sort of craze and fervour for all things Ottoman in the 19th century. And actually dozens and dozens of amazing hammams were built by sort of entrepreneurs with amazing tiles, but usually sort of modelled on some incredible Alhambra-style pattern, but made in Shropshire. <laughs> but then some of them actually survive and are working pretty well. There's Porchester Baths up in West London, but near me, York Hall, still has this wonderful original Victorian tiles and a tepidarium, a calderium, and it, there's this wonderful sense of history in there, even though they've added some 21st century spa aesthetics, mm. which I, I, <laughs> I don't love as much as the rest of it, but I think it's really nice to sort of see that some of that infrastructure still remains. Well, it's so nice, given that if you want to pamper yourself in these dark, damp months of sort of January, February, some of the other, like, spas are becoming so staged and they're 
you're a bit stressful because you feel you're stepping into a film set where this is for you is probably very harks back the nostalgia of when you lived in Turkey in Istanbul but it's probably you can just totally feel yourself and enjoy the treatments when you go to these Istanbul's part of everyday life is to kind of go down to the hammam and have this amazing treatment where you feel like you're being reborn and I think it's something I really miss probably we all miss here in Northern Europe but Marcella we should go to the Mosque de Paris hammam next time we're in Paris together because that's an amazing one it's in the mosque in the neo kind of Moorish mosque and it's amazing oh wow we have to okay. in the middle of the fashion week <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in the evening of course yes. everyone else will be cocktail parties we'll be sitting in a hot box nice clothes yeah. <laughs> nice tiles yeah. <laughs> see you there Our first report this month takes us just a few minutes south from our London HQ to visit the Audley, a new well-curated pub in Mayfair. Established by Art Farm, the hospitality group by the gallerists behind Hauser and Worth, the Audley is an art enthusiast take on a historic Victorian pub where dark wood panelling is combined with a ceiling installation by British artist Phyllida Barlow and other stunning artworks are dotted throughout the space. I went along to the Audley just before the lunch rush to catch up with you inventors, the CEO of Hauser and Worth, an art farm. Well, welcome to the Audley pub. We are in a gorgeous little corner with a, a spectacular view of this most impressive of all London pubs. And I suppose it is a London pub. You know, it's a very quintessential pub. You know, we are sat here with our feet on a carpet, not on a wooden floor or on a tiled floor, but on a proper carpet, which is what pubs always did because they're at the heart of the community, a pub, and a community is all about conversation and about conviviality. And so this idea about having a wooden floor, which so many bars have now got, that makes it very noisy and very, you know, clappity, and whereas the, the carpet absorbs sound beautifully well. So conversations can take place. People can have a drink and, and share a great conversation or play a game of cards or one of the many sort of board games. So it is most extraordinary. It's also most extraordinary to be in a pub that dates back, you know, to the late 1800s. And it opened as a pub. This building, the Audley building, opened as a pub. It opened as a restaurant and a hotel. And so here we are all this time on, having sort of lovingly restored this pub and restaurant. And the area of the building that used to be hotels are now uh, private rooms. So they're performing a slightly different function to a hotel bedroom, but they're certainly performing this role, which we feel passionate about, this role in the Mayfair community. Mayfair being one of the most special districts in the world, frankly, in any major city. I love the way you started with the carpet, which is classic green pub carpet but then we look up at the ceiling and there's this incredible vibrant mural by Philida Barlow which is very art so it's wonderful to see that kind of sort of intersection here we've got this like really classic pub with surprises, <laughs> with surprises. <laughs> and of course that's where Art Farm the role of Art Farm as a commercial business with a common owner with Ivan and Manuela Wirth owning both the gallery, House and Wirth, and, of course, Art Farm. But that is the power of Art Farm, is that this ability to do the very best in hospitality and to leverage our experience, our knowledge, our passion, our commitment, our relationships with some of the most spectacular artists in the world to create the unexpected. And so you're quite right. Here we are in the pub, the Audley pub, with this extraordinary piece of art on the ceiling by Philida Barlow. Or to our left, a wonderful piece by Rodney Graham, which is a play on a pub mirror, 
And of course, mirrors were very popular in pubs. And so the idea that a piece of work from Rodney, you know, from his estate, it should be adorning the walls here feels really special. And it's those magical interventions that you'll see across the entire building, not just in the Oldley pub, but also in the Mount Street restaurant. The floor that we've worked with, the Broken Man floor by Rashid Johnson, is something quite spectacular too. It's incredible because I think, in a way, in a lot of people's minds, art galleries are kind of these white boxes and they're austere places. But in a sense, as you just touched on, artists and the art community are really embedded in hospitality. And this is their often a very creative space. Bars, pubs, people's front rooms are places where things happen in art. Is that one of the reasons why you felt comfortable as a company kind of coming into the space of hospitality? And how much of a challenge has it been to kind of make sure that you create spaces that really live and thrive and have that creative engine within them and that kind of conviviality? I think since Ivan and Manuela first started the gallery in the early 90s, their relationship with food, their relationship with farming, with restaurants was as natural as their relationship with the great artists of the world. That convening space, that space that one can break bread and enjoy each other's company and chat and celebrate and commiserate and deal make and all of the things that people do around tables either in a domestic setting or indeed in a restaurant setting outside was just part of what they love and it's interesting that in a sense it also is what makes them extraordinarily different that they are prepared to allow the expression of the artist appear in different settings than the classic white box. But then there's nothing classic about Hausenwerth in a traditional sense. Yes, of course we have the traditional style gallery in some of our locations, but then if you go to Menorca, for example, into what would have been a distressed old property on the island of Isle de Rey at the mouth of the harbour of Menorca in, in Mahon, you know, we've lovingly restored some uh, beautiful old buildings that were once hospital site and you can now go and see extraordinary art in quite a different setting. So I think it's just in our DNA. If one goes back in history, the great artists of the world would travel the world, would sit in restaurants, would often barter with the exchange of art for food. I mean, this is something that goes back many, many hundreds and hundreds of years, this idea of the artist and the chef. So it feels a very natural place for Art Farm to want to do this alongside the gallery and you see great examples whether it's in our Roth Bar and Grill in Somerset in Manuela in downtown Los Angeles in the gallery in the United States or indeed more recently the creation of the Five Arms in Braemar in Scotland and now here we are in Mayfair. Where I see you're keeping up the great tradition of a really good shindig every now and then. Well, I think, you know, it's hugely important, isn't it? You know, this idea of, I talk a lot about the power of convening, you know, bringing great people together, celebrating around extraordinary art, fantastic food and wine, great conversation. I mean, what's there not to like? You talked about barter and this sense of artists throughout history having come and actually traded their work for just a meal. Can you tell me about commissioning these pieces because it is an interesting transition for some artists to suddenly for instance Rashid Johnson working on a floor how does that work and is it sometimes a bit of a stretch for certain artists to suddenly think practically and do a ceiling what has that process been like here well the creative process is extraordinary and we are surrounded by 
extraordinary talent within the organization, you know, led by Ivan Manuela, Mark Peel in America, who just intuitively get it and they see opportunities. When we first came to look at this building, the first thing that Ivan said is, this is a piece of glorious architecture. He didn't see it just as a building, let alone a pub or a restaurant. He saw it first and foremost for its architectural beauty. So when you start to translate that energy and that passion to the artists and say, we found this extraordinary property, we've got this big idea, we can see the opportunity to allow you, the artist, to creatively express your work in a non-traditional environment, well, everybody thought this was just so exciting. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of arm twisting involved at all. People felt connected, committed to that process. Where it becomes harder is the physical translation and seeing Philida work here in the pub, seeing Rashid's work manifest itself in the restaurant on the first floor, to physically do that is a whole other set of dynamics. And we were very lucky. We work with Luis Laplace, who's an extraordinary Argentinian designer, architect based in Paris, who has worked alongside Ivan and Manuela for years. And he's a genius. I mean, he's an artist in his own right. It's his ability to then work directly with the artist to draw out that creativity and then apply it in a commercial environment like the Audley. I mean, that's also magic. And we're very lucky to have collaborators like Luis. It's interesting that upstairs in the restaurant, I noticed you have a lot of Freud, a lot of Frank Auerbach, these London sort of legends in a sense, who did prop up the bar of many an establishment. I wonder where this beautiful old panelled pub sort of sits in kind of tradition of that type of art establishment. I know that we've lost a lot in London in terms of the Connolly Room Club closing, which was an amazing, quite notorious haunt for artists to kind of create, but also really get up to all sorts of probably completely scandalous antics. <laughs> These um, amazing establishments that we've kind of lost. Is there something of an ambition to kind of redress the balance and actually create more spaces for artists? The special thing about this particular building and how it sort of works in reality is that, you know, you have the pub on the ground floor, you have the restaurant on the first floor, then you have the series of curious rooms on the upper floors. And there's many ways in and out of this building. And I think we're already seeing sort of three months into the opening how people can appear, you know, through one door and leave through another door. <laughs> so it's already enabling that sense of having a very smart, gorgeous lunch in one of the private rooms and then suddenly seeing one of those guests appear in the pub having a pint of Guinness and half a dozen oysters at four o'clock in the afternoon. So you can sense that there's a mischiefness to how this building is working. And that's exciting. We don't want the formal rules to apply. We want that playfulness. I think the fact is that over many decades now with social media and with the advent of the iPhone and the smartphone and the camera, I think everybody's a bit more cautious now about who they're seen with and the perceptions because Big Brother is often watching. But I hope that we are creating a safe, comfortable environment in this property that allows people to feel relaxed, to feel able to be themselves. And if they don't like it here, then they can always go to the Groucher Club, which of course is somewhere else that we're lovingly restoring as we speak which of course is, from a London perspective, is absolutely all about where the artists, both the painters and sculptors and musicians and writers, would get together and have lots of great mischievous fun 
in the safe confines of a private members club. I mean, it's a very exciting prospect for a lot of people to think about the Groucho coming into your hands just because it is a kind of absolutely unique space in the creative history of London. I wondered maybe you could give me a little bit of a hint about how you might reimagine that space and also some of the other plans you have. I know there's some work going on in Scotland, some new projects around the place. What are the ambitions of Art Farm at the moment? Well, the ambitions are to develop properties and spaces where they're close to or adjacent to our gallery spaces because we think that there is a strong positive relationship in the communities that we operate in and we can see that perfectly well for example in Somerset where we have the gallery and the restaurant and the education centre and the gardens you can see how people from all walks of life connect to art through the different offer within Somerset you can see that too also the same in Los Angeles you can see it emerging albeit it's a newer project in Menorca how there's something that draws different people in for different reasons and then they start to experience. So in Menorca, for example, there's a gorgeous restaurant and some people will go to the island for the restaurant experience and then discover the art and then they see the education lab and then they start to get involved or their kids get involved and then it enriches their entire experience. I love the fact there was a dog barking there because dogs are allowed in pubs. (laughs) This is a proper pub. This is very authentic as I'm saying that. And so I think that we want to do more of that. But there isn't a number. You know, you can't say, oh, and there's five of those or ten of those. There's opportunities that emerge, for example. I think the Groucho Club is a fantastic addition because from a London perspective, it is wonderful to have the privilege of lovingly restore something and allow the club itself to evolve and bring back the magic of people to a club that has a very famous and very historic role in cultural London. But what's common, you know, amongst all of the projects we're involved in is the deep sense of community, our deep love of art, our attention to detail around food and wine, and above all, this idea of convening great people together, putting great people together, allowing great people to meet other great people. And that is the magic of what makes going back to an environment really important to us. Whoever you are, wherever you are in the world, it is this idea of meeting like-minded people in a comfortable, great environment that I think is the magic, and long may that continue. Well, it's fantastic to speak to you in this amazing context. I wondered, just finally, would you mind giving me an insight to one of the memories or moments or even locations in this pub that you've really felt that those themes have come together? Amazing food, art, people that you feel like, okay, this is it, we've really hit the spot here and and we've done what we came to do? Gosh, I I mean, I think there's been probably, hopefully lots of occasions for lots of our guests that I don't even know about other than I can happily smile and see lots of returning clients. But the fact that we've seen people jump on the piano in the pub and start to play songs, you know, in a very impromptu way. Yes, we've also had hired a pianist to come in and to jazz things up. But seeing people spot the piano and get on the keys, I think, is a fantastic experience. I was very um, flattered the other night by a very well-known Hollywood director who was in town promoting a movie and and asked to come to the restaurant. And the restaurant was already completely full. I mean, we could not fit them in. So we decided to ring a couple of the guests that we knew very well 
and we said, would you mind delaying your table by an hour and a half and we'll look after you with a beautiful bottle of champagne. And they said, but who for? And we told them who it was and they couldn't have been happier to make way. But I'm only going to tease you with that, not tell you who it was because that would be indiscreet. But, you know, isn't that about community? Isn't that great that the team are able to talk to a client and say, do you mind, we've got somebody in from out of town, we haven't got any space left, would you hold back for an hour and a half? I think that tells you that even three or four months into opening, we're starting to build a really fabulous community of guests. I like to imagine them sort of delaying their meal and having a glass of fizz and maybe a little sing-song around the piano. <laughs> As I hope Confect Corner listeners will come down and do, because it really is a special and wonderful institution, beautiful, beautiful panelling and amazing atmosphere. Thank you for having us. Certain seasons come accompanied by a specific musical identity. If summer is about sultry melodies, deep bass and pulsating reggaeton beats, winter is often drowned out by familiar Christmas tunes. But if you really think about the music that sounds like winter, its crystal clear freezing days or the stillness of its long nights, then the work of Norwegian singer-songwriter Faye Wildhagen is much more of an accurate match. Nature ended up being a powerful reference point for Wildhagen's music. Growing up, she was frequently taken out to the woods and mountains by her family, which means that exploring the wild on her own comes naturally. Confex deputy editor Chiara Ramella jumped in a car with Wildhagen and drove to a lake just east of Oslo. They started by talking about the differences between recording in a studio versus in the middle of a forest and how nature helps her make music. It helps me to relax and also to be more present in being a human being because I think it's easy to forget when you're in the city and where things are happening and there's always stimulation, there's like cinemas and concerts and things happening, you know. I get really distracted. I really want to go and see friends and be with them or fix things that I have to do instead of carving space for music. For me, it's really difficult because I have to write and be true and honest in what I do. And I think being in the mountains or in the forest, it helps me be more present in myself and also, yeah, to reflect. It makes a really, really good space for reflection and just being me. We can hear slightly in the background a few barking noises. You've also got a new friend in your life. Can you tell us about him? And what also making a duo with an animal can do for you as a person and in extended sense of connectedness to nature and to what matters to you in life? Oh, I got home during Corona, actually, because it was a bit too lonely being in the woods and also alone. So I got him and he's been the best choice I've ever made, I think. And I feel so lucky to kind of have a a life witness in an animal. And he's so connected to me and I'm so connected to him. And for me, it brings forefront like a sensibility and... You know, he never judges you or says what he wants or you kind of have to understand each other or try to at least and be 
honest and true and he really responds to that you know you can't say one thing and mean another to him because then he get really confused because he reads you and and you try to read him and it's really really beautiful to connect because that's a really true connection because you can't have this hidden things or yeah lies or anything you're just really really pure and he loves you no matter what and I really love him and it gives me so much joy to take care of him also and to see him grow and <laughs> to see him be a good dog <laughs> to see him be a good boy that's yeah. nice now I get really proud of him and proud of us also like we're going to classes and learning things and developing and also for me to just shift focus and to learn like a new thing it's been so good for my brain I think also to have a friend to hike with that's also pretty nice you kind of experience nature and hiking really differently because he smells and sees and hears other things than you so he turns his head places I wouldn't turn my head and I go places he wants to go sometimes and we discover new things and he can see like a moose or something that I don't see and suddenly I see it because of him and then I think we kind of discover things together which is so so beautiful actually I don't want to play We've talked a lot about loneliness and connection and deep, profound connection. And one of the things that you mentioned when talking about your next album or the work that you're working on at the moment is this idea that you'd like to record it with other musicians, in studio, all together. Do you enjoy playing live? Do you enjoy playing with other people? And what does that mean for you and for your music? I really enjoy playing live. That's like where music and magic happens you know when you're on stage and can feel like you're together with the audience and like the distance between you and the audience are kind of getting smaller and smaller and smaller because you kind of are all equals and you kind of forget that you're on stage and they're down on the floor or when you kind of just lose yourself to the music i can almost feel like the roof lifting and uh, It feels almost like a religious thing, you know? When people talk to me about religion, I can say, like, that's what it feels like to play live sometimes, when everything's just perfect. And I think that's also about a community and togetherness and being, like, open and vulnerable and true, present together in one place. For me, that is really, really magic. We've also talked about how perhaps in the past you've written music that you didn't necessarily realize was a bit of a way of expressing your inner thoughts, your inner emotions. What does writing music feel like for you right now? We talked a lot about this idea of not necessarily finding lots of different places or moving a lot around with your music, but finding somewhere good to be. It's an expression that I think is very evocative. Can you tell me a bit about what writing music feels like for you and what kind of music are you writing right now? I think it's a lot about research, actually. When I deliver an album, I never feel like this is the album about this or like this is a legacy 
for who I am or what I do. It's never like that. It feels like more like a task you deliver in school. You've done research for one or two or three or four years and then you deliver your like bachelor or something. This is my research. I feel like my albums are much more like that. And one album is like a stepping stone to the next one. It's very much exploring and discovery and being curious about like the human connection and the human brain. (laughs) I think like how we work. And I think now my main thing has been like patterns. Like why do I do the things I do? Why do I respond in that or that way? And why am I me? I think that's the question, but also it transfers to everyone. Like, why are you you? And why are my mother like this and my father like this? And what does that mean? Or where does it come from? So it's like a big research and it's not necessarily about them or me. It's about the research in itself. And uh, music-wise, I've been playing a lot with my band lately and just really, really, really wanted to make an album that feels like a really good place to rest and to be. Not rushing to new heights or really quiet lows and really explosive big choruses or guitar solos or whatever. I think it's finding the rhythm and also the patterns in music, I think, and try to rest in and believe in them. See if it's a place where I can feel like I belong. This idea of finding a particular meaning in certain times of the year is winter a place where you feel like you belong, uh, where you can focus inwards and face all the things that perhaps in other times it's not necessarily your main focus. What does winter represent for you and your artistic process? I think winter is so filled with these huge contrasts which really like engage with me as a person. It can be so dark (laughs) and so lonely and so harsh with the weather and like really hard wind or really hard snow like whipping your face (laughs) when you're outside and then just coming inside and you can make a fire in the oven and just do really, really basic things which are just so good for me, I think. Connecting to like the human history, it feels like really right to do those things to do those really like simple things that we've always done but also like the beauty in a really sunny day like a quiet day outside and when the weather is kind and the mountains are kind and just want you it feels like everything's all right but then suddenly around the next corner it could be almost like dangerous with avalanches i think it's about respect for me i really respect nature and i really feel small and the nature in the winter, you get even more respectful. The musician Faye Wildhagen there speaking to Convex Chiara Rumella. We've spoken about how nature can be an inspiring force before, but I'm curious to hear, Marcella, does the music you listen to change with the seasons? When I think about this, I believe yes. There is clearly warming, embracing music, nice for a winter evening and a pot au feu, Jewish klezmer music from Eastern Europe or 
Arabic Andalusian music by Lili Bonish, for example. But then there is also fresh, sunny music for a bright summer morning. Think Bee Gees. Probably <laughs> yeah. one chooses unconsciously. Don't you think so? I think you're absolutely right. Gillian, what about you? Is musical seasonal? Oh, totally. I mean, I think it makes sense. You know, so much of our lives just revolve around the warmth and the cold of, of spring, summer, fall, winter. And so I definitely am. I find when I was thinking about it that winter is more instrumental for me. Piano, like my ultimate like nesting track in winter, I think is Keith Jarrett's concert in Köln. is just sublime for winter in front of the fire. But then come spring and certainly spring, into summer it's French Euro pop it has to be something like Angel it just has to be very poppy and bouncy yeah I think it's funny I mean obviously we bounce around to music dancing at Christmas parties or in parties throughout winter but it's not quite the sense of like open skies and mm. landscape and kind of connection with all of that I, I like those sort of sonic tracks that you listen to on a big road trip in summer like a kind of this a band Portico Quartet I really like and you feel like the sense of motion and exploration and that's totally kind of we're limbering up to that late spring <laughs> you start listening to that oh, stuff I'm really longing for it but it's so funny Marcella that you say you know this kind of cosy instrumental kind of like wonderful intimacy that you have with music in winter which is really the moment we're at now I mean, what are you listening to at home at the moment? I'm not so much at home at the moment, <laughs> <laughs> traveling too much. But if it's cold outside, I really, I love cooking and listening to music and cooking forever, actually. The, the dinner actually is not so important anymore, but just like cooking damps, uh, herbs, nice smelling dishes. And like I said, for example, Lili Bonish is for me always, always good for that. It's it, You have to drink red wine with it, for example, too. And uh, it gives the program for the whole evening. I like cooking to a kind of blue. You're going to start wow. <laughs> chopping nice. the onions. <laughs> and by the time you've like, got to the end of it all, you, you may have a meal on your hands. I wonder if it tastes different depending on the music you're listening to. <laughs> probably, probably. And now to the future of floriculture. In the interest of promoting a more sustainable approach to the classic Valentine's Day rose, a UK-based community of florists, growers and chefs, the Saw Collective, have unveiled a very special campaign. Why buy roses in February? To highlight the UK's needless consumption of over 570 tonnes of roses each year, the collective have released four unique posters designed by artists Hazel Breyer, Laura Diggins, Ed Dingley and Emily Harris that serve as beautiful substitutes for that doting flower. To talk about the importance of the campaign and the potential seasonal bounty of chilly February, I was joined in the studio a little earlier by two of its founding members, Olivia Wilson and Jess Geisendorfer. February is probably one of the months of the year where there is very little when it comes to floral offerings. And I think that for me and Jess and all of us at the Soul Collective, I think that's part of the beauty of the time. So it does require you to have to use your eyes and to look for it, to see the sort of beauty that is there. And everything that is around is very much just emerging. So it's these beautiful and really delicate first signs of 
the seasons changing. There is winter blossom, which is always very beautiful to see on the trees and always feels unexpected somehow. I think I'm still surprised actually that the flowers come before the leaves because it sort of seems like it should actually be the other way around. And then there are really tiny cyclamen which can be seen and snowdrops which are some of our very favourites because they really are the first the first little flowers that emerge out of crofts of snow ideally if we can sort of imagine the most picturesque February scene but in terms of flowers which are genuinely in season in the UK in February it is really quite limited there are hellebores which are also beautiful Jess have you got anything else? I've noticed some people commenting on oh but there's snowdrops in my woodland and there's lots of narcissi already in the woodland for example or they see flowers that are established perennials that come back year on year and these naturally will be flowering a bit earlier than those that might be available to cut or grown on a more commercial level those things come a little later and I think especially in London where the climate's a little bit warmer people are like oh but my this tree or my these are already out so why can't we have them on mass or why can't we have a bouquet of them and I think that's another thing I think why by raises is one of the points we try and make is actually just going outside and enjoying what's actually happening rather than trying to take them and put them into your house those things don't go hand in hand if that makes sense. It's interesting that it's partly a kind of perception changing that idea of the acquisition of flowers and maybe allowing people to attune themselves to the beauty of the season and the way the season changes. Do you think that's something that you as florists, and certainly in Hertfordshire where you're growing flowers, have the privilege of really observing spring just appearing? And we forget to do it in cities, certainly, because life is so fast and we're that much more removed from nature in some ways. I think 100%, I think that is what was incredible about the pandemic is that people were having those conversations and were mentioning things and one of the things that we hoped was that might continue but it's amazing how quickly you just fall back into the habit of not looking outside around you because our lives are so busy again and life's so frenetic particularly in cities that you just don't give yourself the opportunity to do that but we are blessed with having so many incredible parks even if you don't have a garden there is the opportunity to witness this changing of seasons it's just so incredible and it's so grounding and something that we find incredibly nourishing actually it sounds potentially ridiculous but I think that there is real truth in taking the time to appreciate nature and you would have thought or one might think that buying flowers and bringing them to the home is a way of doing that but unfortunately the global floriculture system is so far removed now from any sense of genuine seasonality It's really hard to do that, which is essentially what this campaign is about. Jess, it's interesting because I feel that the commissioning of these very beautiful illustrations, it changes perceptions as well because you're sort of wooing the audience with a beautiful hellebore, the elegance of some snowdrops, and you feel like, actually... Why am I doing this? And the same question could be asked in July when a certain other plant is completely off the cards and has to be flown in on a plane. Could you tell us a little bit about how seasonality plays out throughout the year and if I was really planning to try and buy in season in Europe, certainly in Northern Europe, what should I be buying in early May, in early June and just plot a little bit further down the calendar for us? I think... First recommendation is, depending on where you are or where you're based, is to buy from an independent 
florist or better a grower there's a brilliant network in the UK called Flowers from the Farm I don't know if that exists in mainland Europe but early May you can start expecting foxgloves and hardy annuals that may have been planted by flower farmers in the autumn and now are just starting cornflower early June we would be expecting peonies which shockingly you can actually get most year round from New Zealand and the flower market if you so desire (laughs) so like peonies and they're like the most incredible flower and it's so worth waiting for them because there's some really incredible growers in Paris actually where I've been living quite recently the moment the peonies come you know you can't miss it it's almost a moment of celebration for the whole city you hardly miss anyone clutching these huge posies of peonies and they're on every corner there's a sense of seasonality that some cultures have held on to and in a way that's what we want to get back in London the sense of this is the moment is there a moment that you really have lived where you you know it's June because you've seen a certain rose or a kind of floristry benchmark roses are quite a clear one because they do definitely mark the sort of arrival of summer or the the peak of summer I also think sweet peas slightly earlier on they're amazing because the scent of the sweet pea is just the most incredible thing and that's something that just never gets boring every year waiting for them to arrive and then I think there's another change again they sort of arrive in July but they really come into their own in August and September and that's the dahlia which has recently become a lot more popular. They went through a sort of pariah phase for a few decades and no one wanted them, but now they're back in fashion. But it is amazing how the flowers do mark the change in the seasons. And we were talking about this recently, how you just don't have anything to lose from working seasonally. You only have something to gain because it means that, you know, if you're putting on a party or you want to give someone some flowers and you give them a genuinely seasonal bunch, it will be completely different every single month in fact most likely every two weeks so it's an incredible opportunity to sort of mark the changing of the year. That was Olivia Wilson and Jess Geisendorfer founders of Saw Collective. This is Comfort Corner. Next, the United States, where one of New York's most iconic bohemian establishments is currently being redeveloped into a luxury hotel. Over the years, the Chelsea Hotel has played host to Mark Twain, Janis Joplin, Andy Warhol and Patti Smith, among many other famous faces. But now, a new film executive produced by Martin Scorsese, Dreaming Walls, inside the Chelsea Hotel, wants to explore this legacy and how the story of the hotel tells a wider story about the evolution of New York. Confect Sophie monaghan Coombs sat down with the film's directors, Amelie van Elt and Maya Duverdier, and started by asking Maya how she would describe the hotel. It is still and it was a myth when we entered the place. And it's a myth that in a way was uh, falling apart in reality because when we first opened the door, we discovered what was the reality of the place today. And I think the film talks about this gap between the myth and the reality. And it brings us into the dream also of this place. Yeah, yeah, it's true that uh, we knew it from books of Paris Smith, just kids, and from, you know, music and stuff. And it's true that when we faced it, it was really like a completely different building from what we had imagined. And uh, the writer who wrote The Dreaming Palace, which is really like a Bible about the Chelsea and all of its history, she always says in the book and also today that the Chelsea Hotel ex- exists more in the head of the people who imagine it than in reality. And I think there is something true about that. But still, it's still really like 
like a very amazing place, you know, you can feel in the gene of the place that there is like this kind of utopia that you can feel because of the architecture of the building, because of the way the circulation was made for people to meet, you know, for a lot of big places to gather together. And also, yeah, you can feel like the agency of the building was made of for people of different, you know, social classes or to meet also, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, and it really happened and it's still there. When we were there, you know, we could still feel it. We were wandering in the hallways. We were meeting these old people walking inside the Chelsea. It was sometimes also a bit phantomatic, you know. You like, you like working here? Yes, of course. What do you like about it? Oh, uh, there's a lot of history in this building. Uh-huh. And, um... It's a lot of ghosts going on around here. Did you feel anything? Yeah. In what way? Well, some ghosts, they just die here. You know what I mean? The place was really in this in-between two periods, you know? And I guess now it's we went there for the Tribeca Film Festival, so we, we saw the Chelsea when it was finished. And now it's much more um, polished mm -hmm. and... Uh, But still, the people are there, so you, you can still feel this transgressive uh, atmosphere, let's say. So one thing that your film does really well is highlighting the people that are less well-known but really made the Chelsea what it is. And a few of them still live there, but there have been issues with the redevelopment and many have been forced out. But how did you find out more about the stories of these people and get into exploring them during the making of the film? It was really like a refuge, a shelter for people. So it has really like a lot of impact on, on artists, on minorities. And you could always find like this diversity or variety of people that really made it famous. And everywhere in the world where you would be, you could, you know, say to people, let's meet at the Chelsea. It was really like that important. So maybe obviously not in the main street, but... When you talk about the Chelsea, everybody kind of know that. And so when you dig a little bit in the underground or, you know, with some archivists with whom we worked, you can start to find a lot of history of it. But it's not like uh, the Second World War, what is really obvious, you know. It's really like you have to dig a little bit, but you find very easy. And one of the statements that one of the people that feature in the film says that stuck out to me was, would New York disappear if we stopped paying rent? And I really felt like this was a story about this particular building and about New York, but really also a story about gentrification. How do you think about how the hotel kind of captures that changing landscape of New York and who mm -hmm. has access to it? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about it because we always refer to the Chelsea as a very, in a way, romantic place also for art. And we always talk about it as a creative place, as a shelter for artists. But I think it's also very important to say that it's a shelter for people who has really low money, you know. And so a lot of people live there for the art, but they also couldn't live anywhere else because they have rent stabilized. Cheap rooms, fun people. Fun people, you are a liberal. Flexible management. That's what I meant. Not everybody had a, a lease with a stabilized rent, but some of the people, they could get it. And the one that are still there today, 
are obviously on this stabilized rent and that allowed them to stay. But it was also a place where rich artists used to come. And that's again very important to say that Stan Lebar, the manager of the place, who really made the Chelsea what is the Chelsea today, used to curate the place and, you know, took money from rich people to offer cheap rooms to others. And that's really what created this amazing place because, you know, you couldn't find a place where so many different people could gather together and exchange. That's really what made the Chelsea. I don't know what you want to call it, but since all the all the changes started and Stanley was, you know, taken from his position, ousted, well, we've had lawyers, it's been a court battle. The last straw was giving up a big chunk of uh, my apartment here, uh, Janice Joplin's suite, 411. I gave up the bedroom, the bathroom, and the kitchen and the entry hall. One of our characters, Mer Lister, you know, she had a big loft and at the time, in the 80s, sometimes owners were like setting fire on places to rise rent and force people to leave their places. So again, she found a refuge in the Chelsea. So many, many of the people who were poor artists or, you know, kicked out of their places because the city was changing, the Chelsea was also a place where you could find a room and stay. The film is really the story of these people that we never talked about because they are not the big names. They are not the one who we think they made the history. But in reality, they are making the history because without them, the Chelsea wouldn't be what it is. They are like the fertile soil for all the other artists to raise. And it was so important for us to be... Um, um, to visible. Yeah, it's, to make them this. visible. A report there by Sophie Monaghan-Coons. You're listening to Confect Corner. And finally, it's time for our essay. The ritual of hot and cold bathing has benefits far beyond well-being. Journalist and diplomat Heli Swaminen welcomes you to sauna diplomacy, Finnish style. I'm at my happiest when I'm between steamy sauna and a dip in the Baltic Sea or a cool lake. The rounds of the hot room and cooling off make you ecstatic and Syrian at the same time. In my love of sauna, I'm a typical Finn. And when you love something, you want to share it. Inviting guests to the sauna is an old Finnish way of hospitality. If you spend a weekend at the friend's country cottage, not to be invited to one would be very odd. The sentence, sauna on lämpimänä, sauna is warm, is heavy with meaning. The host is looking forward to the session and wants to make sure the guest enjoys. There are about three million saunas in Finland. That's more than one for every two of the 5.5 million Finns. When a Finn builds his own house, the plans often start with the sauna. In the old times and before modern hospitals, the sauna abundant with boiling water was even the place to give birth. Today it is more about wellness and relaxing, but it still carries all the traditions of past. Sauna is also a way to create trust and forge friendships in a way that I find more powerful than the classic cocktail reception or dinner. Sauna is one of the rare venues where no one checks their mobile phones. From a young age, Finns are used to the intimacy and often nudity of sauna, It's an almost sacred, decidedly non-sexual space. 
where everyone is equal and respected. So when we invite foreigners to sauna, we do our very best to create a safe space and one where it's fine to keep your swimsuit on. What about sauna diplomacy? The word diplomacy has two overlapping definitions. It's about management of relationship between countries, but in broader terms, diplomacy refers to the art of dealing with people in a sensitive and tactful way, especially in sensitive situations. What links these two definitions is trust. You cannot reach a peace deal without trust. And to discuss anything sensitive in an honest way, you need trust. Think of the origin of the handshake in ancient Greece. The handshake showed that you came without a weapon in your hand. What could be more disarming than taking off all or most of your clothes and sitting together in a small enclosed room? It goes without saying that discussions in sauna are confidential. So it's no surprise that Finnish diplomats and business leaders have always used sauna's potential to ease tensions and to connect. Most of our embassies or residences are home to a sauna. Finland's longest-serving president Urho Kekkonen was a firm believer in sauna's benefits. There is a particular story from 1960, when Finland at the height of the Cold War balanced with its desire to be part of the West and its goal of not to provoke the Soviets in the East. President Kekkonen invited Soviet leader Nikita Rutschev to the sauna in his seaside residence in Helsinki, and the two men bathed until five in the morning, according to legend. Soon after the visit, the Soviets said they were prepared to support Finland's relationship with the West. Like most traditions, sauna has evolved. Policy decisions are made in conference rooms, under daylight, and saunas are more part of leisure and team building. In modern diplomacy, sauna is also a vehicle to showcase Finnish culture. This is why we launched Diplomatic Sauna Society London. After a year as the society's host, I have seen many meaningful encounters and new friendships. Though I apologize for not being able to reveal more. What is said in the sauna stays in the sauna. That was journalist and diplomat Heli Suominen. We've talked plenty here on Conflict Corner about the relaxation that saunas can bring. But what about this more social aspect? Gillian, have you ever experienced it? Goodness, I loved Heli's piece, but I have never ever experienced that level of sociability and diplomacy in a sauna. And it's strange because I'm Canadian and you'd think being a cold culture, maybe we would share that culture of saunas, but we don't. So I think it's definitely in the DNA of the culture. We're Canadians. We socialize in bars. We don't socialize without our clothes on. <laughs> Now, I like the idea, but I think I have to head to the Finnish embassy in London to really understand it because it's not in my nature. I think I would find it uncomfortable. Although from all the sound of it, it just is opening up of relations and diplomacy. So I think I have to be on a mission to head down there and experiment. What about you, Marcella? Do you get this? Yeah, I think so, yes. Because um, in Switzerland, this sauna culture is like the country. It's very neutral and diplomatic. So I understand Heli very well. My perfect sauna is completely dependent on the location, actually. And there is something I'm planning since weeks I'd like to go on a Sunday afternoon on Lake Lucerne or Lake Zurich on a so-called sauna boat. It looks like a wooden box on a raft and you can enter in the middle of the lake and choose the most beautiful views. The sauna boat, you can rent it for your friends alone, so four to six people. 
So I think this would be the perfect friends experience and imagine it with the light snowfall. I'm imagining it. I mean, wow. Yeah. And then you can jump into straight the lake, into the lake, straight yeah. into the freezing lake. Martella, you've got to go and, and report that for Confect. <laughs> it's too good. Yeah. Do you find you have good conversations in saunas? Because I think Heli's piece is really about how this space, because of the intimacy of it, because you're stripped down quite literally, but also emotionally, you're honest, you're, you're in this cosy, cosy, intense environment. Maybe that's a good place for doing business and making people just more compelling, more honest in a sense. I think I know more the feeling. I feel comfortable, but I never talk because actually I have to take off my glasses or contact. So <laughs> I don't recognize the people around me. So I prefer to be silent. I think it's an interesting, there's sort of many stages to the sauna. That The first bit when you're warming up and you feel like talking, then you start kind of getting more intense And I can imagine that could be quite good conversationally, driving people forward. But then I also just start panicking at some point. And when you're with someone, they haven't finished their sentence, but you're desperate to leave the sauna. (laughs) That can actually kind of be quite counterproductive for some diplomatic kind of negotiations, the bilaterals she's talking about. (laughs) Yeah, they thought you were walking out on on their thoughts. In fact, you just were about to faint with the heat. Well, that just about brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. We're driving ourselves (laughs) in this little not-so-hot box, but my thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak as ever. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and edited by Christy O'Grady. You can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. (laughs) 